Matthew 7, verse 21. Hear God's word. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man, a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And this is the word of God for the people of God, and we respond by saying, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, this morning we ask that you would be with us, you would guide us by your spirit, you would give us clarity, um, insight into what it is you have to say to us as a congregation, um, to us as a, as a people. Um, and I know a lot of us are coming from different places this week. Um, some of us come in um, leaping and excited about Christmas and all that comes with this Advent season. Others of us come crawling, beat down. They've had a difficult time. It's a difficult season. There are feelings. There's PTSD. There's all kind of things happening that go, we just want to get away from this time. And whatever, wherever we may be on that spectrum, I pray that here and now you would allow us to simply like just be present, to let those things go. To realize there's nothing we can do to change or manage those situations, but we can be present and allow you by your spirit to speak to us, to meet us in our sadness and our loneliness and our gladness, wherever it may be, but to meet us. Because that's what we came here this morning to experience, and that's to meet you. And that's what you promise us as we come to your word and we come to your table, that your presence is with us. So please be with us, we, we pray. And that we would be able to walk away so compelled, convinced, and conformed more into your image that we are more like you, Jesus, as we leave here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so we today end a six-month journey of walking through the Sermon on the Mount. If this is your first time with us, um, there's a lot to catch up on. Uh, but I'm going to try to summarize it as best as I can uh, in just a few minutes. We won't go longer than an hour, hour and a half, I promise. So, and that's the truth. Okay, so um, we've been in this series, though, Sermon on the Mount, and we've called it the Path of Jesus because we've been looking at these sermons that were kind of stitched together that Jesus was giving throughout his ministry for three years as he was traveling up and down Palestine and Israel. And these were messages that were pertinent and important to him. He was an itinerant preacher who would have a very specific thing that he's wanting to get across. And as we've journeyed through this, we found there's a lot of challenges as we really look at what Jesus has to say. That honestly, Jesus isn't some kind of little cuddly bear that we want to come up to and, you know, just go, oh, I just, you're such a sweet, awesome, loving Jesus. I don't think bears are really that cuddly other than care bears. But like, he's more like a 
prickly porcupine, but like, I'm sure there's a soft underbelly. I need to stop this metaphor. Okay, so anyway, we find that like Jesus, though, is just a lot. He's a lot. And we, though, if we're going to say we're going to follow him, we have to take all that he has to say. We can't pick and choose what we want to hear from him. And he, he rounds up this whole Sermon on the Mount by talking through a very common um, story, now metaphor, that we've probably all heard and thought through many times before, um, this idea of a person who builds their house on a rock and one who, who builds their house on sand. And as I was thinking through it, um, so is, is anybody here, uh, I, I know most of you aren't, but I'm just wondering, is there anybody here, a child of the 80s? Like, did you spend more than seven, eight years in the 80s? Okay, so a few of us, okay. So I'm like, these were like great, great years, okay? I mean, 90s were good, but 80s were awesome, okay? That's where all these great songs come from, um, and you have Transformers, um, you had Knight Rider, Okay, are you with me? Um, and, and you also had, for me personally, uh, you had the A-Team, okay? Anybody an A-Team fan growing up? Yeah, there we go. So here's, here's why I bring that up. When I kept thinking about this sermon um, and what to title it, I knew like two weeks ago what to title it. It was very simple. It was, I pity the fool, all right? I pity the fool. Uh, and if you don't know what that means, I'm about to show you a picture of, of what it can mean for you. Um, anybody know who this is? Mr. T. Mr. T that's right, Mr. T. And um, uh, he actually first coined the phrase in Rocky III uh, when they were interviewing him about fighting Rocky Balboa, and he goes, I pity the fool. And then it kind of stuck with them throughout the rest of his ministry, because he had a ministry, folks. Mr. T is a very important figure uh, for those of us in, in the 80s. He shaped a lot of things. Um, and so I always found Mr. T just, I loved him, right? Uh, I loved him. Um, and I'm actually finally getting a widow's peak close enough to that mohawk now. That's what I'm finding. Uh, so all that to say, I just couldn't help. Every time I was reading this passage the last couple weeks, I was going, all I think of is Jesus. All I think of is Mr. T standing and, you know, in Galilee in front of a bunch of uh, Jews and going, I pity you. I pity the fool. That's what I kept thinking about. And Jesus saying, I pity the fool. Now, that doesn't fully encapsulate everything, but it at least gives us like an idea that Jesus is saying, I pity you if you do not listen to what I have to say. If you do not catch this, I, I want to use as much hyperbole as possible to get your attention. If you don't catch this, you don't get Jesus. Okay? So everything's on the line for you this morning if you say you're going to follow Jesus. And I don't mean to use hyperbole. I'm just saying like Jesus uses it here. That he says everything's on the line here. Because if you don't get this, at the end of the day, if you're not going to do it, then you actually can't follow me. Because this is how I'm setting it up. He sets up a bifurcation here, and we hate it, but we also need it. And so I just want to look at a couple of things. He's going to first give us that there's a severity to foolishness, and then there's a gift to wisdom. So there's a severity to the foolish life, and then there's a gift to the wise life. And we just need to unpack this and let Jesus speak for himself. Now, first, the severity of, of the foolish life. Jesus starts with seemingly this, um, 
innocent, non-threatening metaphor. Like metaphors usually are like, okay, I can get into that. I like that story. That's good. All of a sudden, but until you realize all of a sudden that that story has kind of got the barrel pointed on you. Like Jesus is given this story of a wise man who built his house on a rock. And if, whenever he would have said that, just so you know, in northern Palestine, uh, the major export there was stone. Because that was the greatest resource they had. Northern Palestine, Israel is much more barren. So there's a lot of rocks. So we've even said this before, that when, we, when the Bible talks about Jesus being a carpenter, his dad being a carpenter, more than likely that means that he was some kind of stonemason, that he worked with stones, because that's what houses were built out of. Houses weren't built out of wood, okay? So he was some kind of stonemason. And every person living in northern Palestine, when they would have heard Jesus said this, they would have gone, yeah, of course. Like, that's what we do here. You have to, everybody knows that you lay the right kind of foundation with rock and then build the house from there. Everybody knows that. And so they're all kind of nodding with him when Jesus says, there was a wise man, he built his house on a rock. And then when all the winds came and blew and the storm came, the house didn't fall because the foundation was so solid. And then Jesus gives the visa vita this. Because that's what a metaphor and that's what a parable needs to do. That there's another side. And he goes, and there was also a person who was foolish. And this person built their house on sand. And the only way you're going to find sand would be at the Sea of Galilee. But really, if you just went 50 miles west of Galilee, you would then get to what is now known as the Mediterranean Sea. And that there would be people who would perhaps would do that. And every person listening to this at this moment would start like, like cackling to themselves, laughing, like going, oh my gosh, what an idiot. No, everybody knows here in Galilee, everybody knows you build a house on rock and not on sand. Everybody gets this. And Jesus is saying one is wise and one is foolish. Now, before we kind of go further, let's just pause for a second. And let's, before we get to the definition of what wisdom and foolishness is to an ancient Near Eastern person at this time, like let's think about it for us. As I was thinking through, like, wisdom, what it means, three words, having experience, knowledge, and good judgment. Having experience, knowledge, and good judgment. If we were to talk about what wisdom looks like or a wise person, this is someone who has a lot of experience, right? They have a lot of knowledge, and they have a lot of good judgment. I remember in my early 20s, it hit me that I wasn't a very wise person. Now, the reality is this. Nobody in their early 20s is a wise person, right? Like, you can admit that even in your 20s, right? If you can't, then you're foolish. Okay, so everybody knows that even in your 20s, you don't get to be like a really wise person. But just so you know, 20-year-olds, there's a lot of people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s who aren't wise people either, all right? And if you can't admit that where you are, then you're foolish, all right? So... All of us are needing wisdom, and the way we get it right is through experience and knowledge. We get it through uh, good judgment. I remember in my early 20s, I committed a whole year of my life just reading the book of Ecclesiastes every day and memorizing passages, because I was so convinced if I could just fit it in my brain, then I could be a wise person. And honestly, it paid off in many ways. I sounded wise. 
people would tell me things like, hey, that's a really wise thing you say. People started coming to me for advice, but the reality is that my wisdom was so paper thin, and I still was actually a very foolish person. Because when the Bible talks about wisdom and it talks about foolishness, it's not talking about it simply by going, you have good experience and good judgment and a lot of knowledge. And the way we actually understand wisdom is to understand the vis-a-vis of foolishness. Because that's what the Bible is so, is so in, inherently against. Matter of fact, the word fool here in the Greek put on the, on the screen for you, is morose. Everybody say morose. And morose is where we get the word, where we get our word moron. Okay? Now, when you think about a moron, you think of somebody who's just really, like, dull. Okay? Somebody who's just really kind of dull, and they're not just using some common sense. That's what we want to talk about moron. But actually, Jesus, the way he's referring to moros or moron is someone who, now check this, someone who is impious and godless. And you can look at that and go, well, that's kind of harsh. Like to call somebody foolish and call them a moron. I never, you know, when you call somebody a moron, hopefully you don't do that. But if you ever call someone a moron, you, you go like, you're not meaning that they're impious or that they're godless. You just mean they're dull. But Jesus is saying there's something way more intense with this idea of being a foolish person. That when you're foolish, you will end up being godless. Now I want to walk through a few passages, a few, ver- a few verses here in Scripture to help us kind of wrap our minds around it. Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 22. From within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Foolishness gets lumped up with sensuality, wickedness, theft, murder. That's what foolishness gets lumped in with. Like Jesus is putting foolishness on par with those things. He's not just simply saying that you're making some bad decisions. You need to listen up so you can make better decisions. He's like, this is on par with all these things that we would look at and go, of course not. Another passage here, Numbers 12, 11. Now, this is Aaron and Miriam who have come against Moses because he's married um, a woman of color. Like, this is in their racism, they've come against Moses. And then God's like, this isn't going to go well for you, Aaron, and you, Miriam, because, like, your lives are going to be shortened now. And he says here, Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. So the Old Testament, they start putting together foolishness and sin. In Psalm 107, verse 17, some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquity suffered affliction. He's saying sin and foolishness are linked with sin and that leads to folly give you another. This is in 1 Chronicles 21. David, the context here, David in his arrogance 
in his sense that he was this very amazing, accomplished leader, and because of him, Israel had prospered, decided to do a census throughout all of Israel because he wanted to find out just how many mighty men he had. And then he realized that this was a very foolish thing to do. And here's what David says. David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. Okay, so growing up, I always looked at getting wisdom and not being foolish as like trying to get an, um, like an instruction booklet, a manual, a guide. Have you ever felt like that you're just kind of like this, um, this uh, uh, object, this thing in life that you don't have the instruction manual for? Like that you're going, how does this work in me? I miss these instructions here. Like I felt that way constantly growing up. And that's not necessarily because of like my environment. It's just because of like I'm a human. Like you just, you just grow up going, how do I work? I don't have the page for that. Uh, and if you're like me, like whenever I get products I need to put together, I'd never look at the instruction manual. I'm horrible. Okay? And this causes problems and Ikea has called me out on this. Because you know if you have an Ikea product, they have rigged it to where you have to read every single line. And if you don't, then you'll be in trouble. I've, I've put together things before. Matter of fact, I put together something in our office, didn't read the instruction manual, and then it wasn't working. I had to call Andrew in. Andrew's like the only person I know that he's like, let me just read all these lines, line by line here, right? Like I'm just, I've never been one that wants to do those things. And I've always wanted that in life. Haven't you wanted that too? And so what Jesus is saying here is that the wise person the wise person is going to listen to God and not oppose him. The foolish person will not listen to God and in turn will oppose them. Matter of fact, John Piper said it this way. He goes, sin opposes God, folly opposes you. Sin opposes God, folly opposes you. Now, what does he mean with that? Okay, sin, we know in the Bible, means to miss the mark. Like, sin doesn't mean like you're some kind of devil and you're some kind of horrible person. doesn't mean that. Like, sin means, though, that you, through your actions, are unweaving all that God has meant for good in this world. Sin is the unweaving of all that is beautiful and all the shalom and all the peace. And since the garden, humanity has been on tilt intuitively to unwind these things and so when we sin, we are opposing God. That's what we're doing. We are opposing what God has meant for good in this world. We all agree with that. But we would never really think about how that maybe our folly, like being foolish, would be that we are undoing us. Because sin's about God, but folly or foolishness is about you and me. See, when I am unwilling to listen to God and how he's designed things in this world, sure, I'm going to sin, absolutely, and I can be forgiven for that, and I am and you are, but when I am doing those things, going against what God has designed, I'm actually also unweaving, breaking down how God has made me, and it is foolishness. It is severe, 
and you also, and I also don't do that in relationships. When I don't listen to what God has to say in relationships, I bring foolishness in those relationships. And I end up breaking down the fabric and all the potential that that relationship could bring me and what I could bring to that, that other person. And God is very serious about this throughout the Old Testament. And so Jesus shows up and he goes, don't be a foolish person. If you're a foolish person, you're not just going against God. You're going against you. You're going against the rest of the world. You're, you're destroying things instead of building things. Your foolishness, listen to me on this, your willingness to listen to God or not listen to God isn't an isolated thing just for you. Like you're not just affecting yourself. In your foolishness, you are affecting others around you. It's severe. It reaches far out. And then Jesus is saying to them, not heeding what I have to say will make you into a moron. That's what he's saying. You're going to be stupid. You're going to be stupid in your humanity. I don't mean stupid like you're this dumb person. I mean stupid like you're not, you're not listening to the instruction manual. I'm here in front of you trying to give you the way the world works, the way you work. And if you walk away from this, yeah, you're going to think you're put together rightly, but all you are is a tragedy in this world, destroying relationships, destroying yourself. And he brings it to this climax by going, Look back for a second. Look back at verse 20. Let's see here. Verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus is hinting at some kind of messianic call here. Some kind of messianic call. It's something that all were waiting for. They all wanted a Messiah to show up, to come and usher in God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And he's saying to them, not everyone here who listens, not everyone here who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone here who says, Lord, Lord, will be a part of this thing that what I'm doing. He's saying that your pedigree and your bloodline doesn't get you in, that there's something more. Now, guys, I'm switching this up on you a little bit. I want you now to go to James chapter 1, because I want you to see something in James chapter 1. In James 1, verse 22, he says, Do not be doers of the word, and hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So Jesus is wanting to point out something here, and he's going to build it here in this whole idea of there are those of you who will come to me and say, Lord, Lord. That if you listen to what Jesus has to say and walk away and do not do it, you're like a person who's looked in the mirror and you forgot what you look like once you walk away. For the New Testament writers, hearing and doing means everything. Hearing, then doing. You hear it, then you go do it. Hear it, then you go do it. 
And that's what constitutes a wise person. A foolish person is someone who hears what Jesus has to say, and then you don't do it. Now, because we live in an age of where, of reason and of enlightenment and questioning and all those things are really important, we want to hear something so severe and so big from Jesus and go, well, let me think about that. Let me just go back and ponder if I really want to do this or not. Now, go back here to this passage. We saw in verse 21 through 23, he says, Now everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He goes, if you want to be with me, you don't go back and ponder this. You go back and you do it. Otherwise, you're a moron. I know you weren't expected to be called a moron at church this morning, all right? I'm not, I, don't, I don't want you to walk away with being a moron. But Jesus is saying this, that if you listen to what he has to say and walk away and you don't do it, that this is very severe. Because then it goes on to say in verse 22, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Three things in there. There are those who are prophesying, those who are casting out demons, and those who have mighty power. I want to think about this for a second. Prophesy in the Greek means one's a person who speaks with inspiration. It's not just fortune-telling. It's not just forecasting. Prophecy is also one who speaks with inspiration. To cast out demons, if you were able to cast out demons, that means spiritually you are, like, very fit. Like, you, could, you, you are, like, some kind of spiritual powerhouse. If demons are going away from hearing your voice, that means you have like a lot of power spiritually. So we have someone who speaks inspirationally, we have someone who is spiritually superior, and then it says who do mighty works. And dunamis in the Greek is trying to get across this idea of someone who could do more than what's humanly possible. Someone who could do more than what's humanly possible. Now, let's just break this down for a second. Jesus is saying there will be those of you who come to me and you have this inspiring life of walking with me. You speak inspirationally. People hear you and they go, oh my God, the words of life come from you. You quote all these verses. You really just do know Jesus. Oh, you're such an inspiration to me. You're so tender and kind. And when I'm with you, I just really sense Jesus' presence. One kind of person. Others of you are going to be able to come and go, people look at you and go, man, you are just like, you're like Mr. T of Christianity. Like you are just like spiritually superior. No one messes with you. Like you just got it, all right? And, and people go, oh my gosh, like that person, they got it. Look at their confidence. Look how they just kind of glide into a room and, and like everything works out for them. They quote a verse and God like trembles. He goes, okay, I'll do it. 
And then there's those of you in this room who aren't just inspirational in your faith, in your walk, and you don't just have this amazing spiritual power, <coughs> but you're always doing more than what's humanly possible. You're, you're serving in five areas. You take in one homeless person every day to come live with you. You give twice as much than you ever make. Like, you can not just raise your kids in the name of Jesus, but other people's kids. Like, people look at you and go, you're so amazing. You are more than what's humanly possible, and you're doing it all for the glory of God. And here's what Jesus says. None of you get in. Because you don't get in by being inspirational and having amazing quiet times. And you don't get in by having all this spiritual clout and big presence where demons tremble at your name. And you don't get in by doing more than the next person beside you, improving your weight and your worth through all your effort. That's not how you get in. He goes, if you want to be in this kingdom and a part of what I'm doing, it's going to take you doing things not for you, but doing things for me. Because let's just face the facts. Those of us in this room that want others to see us as such an inspiration spiritually or so powerful or so spiritually sound, that is for us and not for God. And there's no way around it. And here's how you know it. Because every time you have this great, amazing, quiet time and you talk about it, or every time you make these amazing decisions and people go, oh, you're such a spiritually sound and amazing person, or every time you're pulling off all these amazing feats, you are so lonely when it comes to your relationship with God. God feels like a million miles away. And you know it. I'm not here to call it out. I'm not here to point to each person or point to myself and go, well, that's in you. But you know it. You know when you do X, Y, and Z things. Matter of fact, Drew and Jamin walked us through this in Matthew chapter 6. That it's either in your heart and coming out of your heart or you're miles away from it. And Jesus is calling us to the mat here. And he's saying, no more charades. No more playing around. Because a lot of you are going to be disappointed if you don't watch out, that you're going to think you're doing all these great works for God, but you didn't do the simple thing. You just didn't like listen to him and go do that. And here's what he's saying to listen to. The Beatitudes. That those who are poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of God. So that means like there's an honoring and respect for those who are poor. And if you don't have that, you don't get it. That those who mourn will be comforted, meaning those who that you pity and want to get away from because their sadness scares you, Jesus is saying you better enter into that because they're catching on to something that you aren't. Or those who actually say, I want to be salt and light in this world. I don't want to keep making the hard decisions no matter how difficult it may be. Or those who are willing to combat lust and rage in their life and constantly surrender it to God. Those who aren't trying to find the back door out of their marriages. Those who are willing to push for 
nonviolent resistance and change. All these kind of people, that's what Jesus is saying is important. All these things, not your personal quiet time, not how spiritually amazing you think you may be, not how much you can like pull off in life. He's like, just these things, listen to this and go do those things. And if you're not doing those things, I can't promise you that you're in with me. I know this isn't the Advent message we want to hear. I know Christmas is next weekend. I get that. I'm sorry this sermon landed on today. But honestly, like what's the point of us celebrating God coming to earth in a baby and going, this is so amazing that once he grows up and has something to say, we're not going to listen to it. Like it's great celebrating that he came and he did come. His presence matters. But listen, y'all, at some point in time, he's got words to say. He's got thoughts to share. And the question is, like, are we going to do it? And it's a lot, I know. It's a lot. And he's telling us, if you don't do it, you're foolish. You're godless. You're unweaving this whole thing. And you're destroying not just yourself, but other people around you. So, with that said, what do we do? How do we respond to such big claims to not be foolish by Jesus? So in your bulletin, Cynthia Borgalt said she's a pastor and, and writer. I love this. As we actually taste the flavor of what Jesus is teaching, we begin to see that it's not proverbs for daily living or ways of being virtuous. He's proposing a total meltdown and recasting of human consciousness, bursting through the tiny acorn selfhood that we arrived on the planet with into the oak tree of our fully realized personhood. He pushes us towards it, teases us, taunts us, encourages us, and ultimately walks us there. Notice what she's saying, that Jesus is giving more than ways to be virtuous. Not less, but more. You're not simply trying to live an Aristotle, an Aristotle virtuous life where you can just have, like, just people look at you and go, man, you just really are a good person. That's not what this is about. Jesus isn't trying to make you into a good person. He's trying to make this into a good world. But it takes a good person to get to that. So it's not less than virtuous, but it is more. That what Jesus is trying to offer us is that you have the shot of being a fully realized person. Go back, what do I mean? Go back to the instruction manual. How many of you grew up wondering how do you work? What's your place? What's your purpose in this world? And how many times have you wanted to do that through simply like, if I get the right career, marry the right person, have the right amount of kids, then I'm going to have this purpose in my life. And then how many of you, now that you have those things, still question, what's my purpose in this life? See, the purpose question never goes away. 
It's always with us. It doesn't matter what age you are, what stage you're in. And you're going to keep asking that purpose question as long as you keep doing things for you. You will always be asking the purpose question as long as you're doing things for you. So here's your litmus test. If you're asking that purpose question now, there's still things you're doing for you. But what Jesus offers is something more than that's just for you. He's offering something that says, in and through you, you are this little acorn. And you're a part of this oak family. And I've dropped you in this world. And I need you to become more than just this little sprout. I need you to become this flourishing tree that people get to come to, find shade under, refreshment from. That's your purpose. That people get to come near you and go, whoa, there's something substantial that's not just like super inspiring and it's not just so spiritually big with your presence. It's not just that you could pull off so many things, but gosh, you just seem to have purpose because that's what Jesus is offering here, the instruction manual for your life, purpose. And all it takes, all it takes is saying, okay, I'm going to listen to what you have to say. I'm going to go do it. There's some of you in this room that have been teetering in doing this. You've been teetering on going, gosh, that sounds really challenging. I like it more when Drew preaches just because I'm, I'm not going to be yelled at. But still, I like it all. It's good. It's important. When Jamin and Robin are up there, it's just kind of scared. But okay, I'm going to consider it. I get that. Jesus is a scary person. I don't mean scary or evil. I just mean scary like it's big. And some of us in this room, you keep going home and trying to consider the things he's saying, but you come back week after week and you're not doing it. And I just want to say that, like, I love you and Jesus loves you, but you are in very dangerous waters. And if there's more work around apologetics of who Jesus is, if you want to buy into him or not, I get it. You got to do that. Come to us as pastors, we'll help you do that. But if you're calling Jesus your Lord, and you're saying that he actually is the Son of God, which our next sermon series will be an epiphany on the I Am statements. We're going to cover the divinity of, of Jesus. If that's what you're wrestling with, okay. But if you're not, and you're finding yourself still not following through and doing things, and by the way, I don't mean perfect, I do mean progress. That's one thing the recovery world gets so well. Jesus isn't asking you to all of a sudden be like this fully actualized person who's doing it all right here and now. But he is asking you to keep surrendering and keep giving in. To keep putting the next foot in, forward, in front of you. And if you're not doing that, if you keep finding easier, softer ways and back doors to get away from it all, then something's off. And there's other side of us in this room. There's others in this room who have been doing these things. You listen and you go do. You listen and you go do. And you are dangerously close to burnout because you're just as lonely with God as the other person is. So I was thinking through all this, I was reminded. Um, so something I've come in to grips with over the last couple of years is uh, I'm very lonely with God. And I, I, was, I was so lonely with God for years, 
And it, I would get so afraid about that, about what that would mean, that I just tried to avoid it and numb it. But now that I'm not avoiding and numbing that, I just find that I, just, I have loneliness. I ask questions regularly like, God, where are you? God, what's this about? Like, why, why is this so hard? Why is it if I, if I keep doing this, you still seem so distant? Like, I just, I finally have that loneliness and I can talk about it. And I started thinking about, like, where did that come from? Where did that really start? And I remember, I remember um, in seventh, going between seventh and eighth grade, uh, my church would always do these things called camp meetings. Camp meetings. It'd be a week-long revival, camp meeting. And they'd bring in uh, speakers, evangelists, and man, they were inspiring, right? Uh, I saw one dude rip off his shirt and jump off the stage in the middle of a sermon. And I was like, that's what I want to do. You know, like it was amazing. Uh, I knew I was called to, I won't, I won't do that, but I knew I was called to have to go do those kind of things. And I remember, uh, you know, for the youth, they would always bring in like special speakers for youth. And they brought in this guy and had this service. And man, something happened that night when I was when I was uh, 13 years old, and there was a friend of mine, and we were around the same age, she and I, and something was happening in her. And I remember we both went inside the church, and after, after, after this meeting, um, and both shared with our pastors um, what had happened. And I remember, um, so she was the granddaughter of the pastors. She was the granddaughter of the pastor. And I remember it was like two kids coming to a dad, to a father, and both going, look at what we did. And I remember uh, the pastor, because of course it was his granddaughter, but him paying attention to her and not paying attention to me. And I know this sounds weird, but there was a message in my mind at that moment because this person, this pastor, I looked at as like, they were like a God figure to me. They were somebody who represented the God the Father. And I remember in that moment going, I, didn't, I wasn't spiritual enough to get the attention. Now, I can reason myself all day long out of that and go, of course, there's a granddaughter and whatever else. Nobody meant any harm. I get that. But I took a narrative with me for a long time. And here was the narrative. You want to know the narrative I took with me for the longest time? I remember I'd say this to myself. I would say this to myself daily, and that is, no one's going to love Jesus more than me. And I would like almost with like clenched fists, no one's going to love Jesus more than me. I'm going to love Jesus so well and so much, I will never be overlooked again. I will be recognized for what I've done. And I took that with me for years. Into my 20s, into my 30s, even when I hated that narrative. Even I didn't want to believe that, I still was buying into it with, with clenched teeth and fists going, no one's going to love Jesus more than me. But here was the question I always had, but does Jesus love me more than anyone else? Because that was underneath the question, and that was underneath the statement. The statement was, no one's going to love Jesus more than me. But here was the real question, but does Jesus love me more than anyone else? Gosh. For those of you that can resonate with that question, isn't that such a lonely feeling? To wonder if God loves you as much as you love Him? That you're doing these things for Him, is He doing these things for you? And that's why I love the end of what Cynthia has to say here. It says, He pushes us towards it, He teases us, He taunts us, 
He encourages us, and ultimately, he walks us there. You're listening to Jesus and then doing what he has to say isn't about you making this million-mile march to him and proving your worth. Here's what Jesus does. He says it to you, and then he says, now let's walk this direction together. He says it to you, and he goes, let's do this together. You don't have to be as lonely if you don't want, because I'll be here with you. Like, yeah, yeah, I know it's going to be difficult. It's difficult. I get it. This whole my father's will thing is a real pain sometimes, but it really is the way the world works, and I'll walk there with you. And that's what I love about Advent, because Advent shows us what we're trying to get to here. God comes to us and our inability to get to him, and then he walks with us. Like God didn't show up in a baby, set off some fireworks, and then be like, peace, y'all, this is all going to work out. Like he grows up, he walks with other humans to the point of death on a cross, and then he goes, and I'm going to keep walking with you. I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to be in heaven, and I'm going to like intercede for you. I'm going to keep walking with you. That's what Advent gives us, a God who will walk with us, that you don't have to make the walk alone, but we do have to make that walk So now as we get ready and we come to the table, if you're on a side of teetering and you're not following through with what Jesus keeps offering, or if you're on the side where you've been following through with all these things, but gosh, you're so lonely, and where is he? Because I'm getting burned out. I want you to know this table's for you. There's a gift for you here that you don't have to keep living a foolish life. You can lean into a wise life, and you can let the Savior and the God at this table represented that promises that He's with us here, you can let that God walk you through it, wherever it may be. Let's pray. Jesus, what big, big words. What a big, big challenge you give us. That we cannot just be people who hear your word and then walk away and do not do, do anything about it, but we have to be able to hear your word and then do something about it. And we don't hear your word and then do things that make us feel like we're going to be these amazing Christians afterwards. We just do it because you've come to us and you love us and you want to be with us. The motivation's different. We don't do to be. It's out of our being that you love us You've come to us. Out of that being, we now can do. We're human beings who get to be part of doing things in this world. And that switch is so important. Because otherwise, we're going to keep convincing ourselves that every time we have this great quiet time or do this great ministry or serve all these people, that, God, you'll finally see me. And you'll finally love me more. And, And he's saying, Jesus, you're saying, child, you're really going to miss out on a lot if you keep going down that path. And so I pray now as we come to the table, we would be refreshed, that we would find that there's truly a purpose for us here in this world, and that is Jesus to listen to you and then do what you say. So be with us now, we pray, please. Amen.